you know what it's like to live with a dietary restriction? Do you know if the person sitting next to you has one? Don't ask them right now. This is not the time to ask. Dietary restrictions. Scanning over nutrition labels, checking ingredient lists meticulously, having to make consistent, deliberate choices about what you eat, what you consume, having boundaries on your your palate, what you will or won't let in to your mouth. Chances are you've experienced temporary dietary restrictions. Chances are. Knowing many of you in our gathering, I know that some of you are vegetarian. I know that some of you are vegan. I know some of you don't know the difference between the two. I know that some of you, for the sake of your bowels or your blood pressure, it's, you have to watch how much salt you have, in, salt intake, how much cholesterol. Some of you have restrictions on how much caffeine you can take in, self-imposed restrictions. Whether it's out of preference or whether it's out of a doctor's orders, there's one thing that's clear. Whenever you have dietary restrictions, it requires consistent, deliberate intentionality so that you don't slip up, right? Why are we talking about dietary restrictions at the start of a sermon? Well, the Bible, from cover to cover, has a lot to say about foods and what goes in your body. Samuel's been preaching through Revelation. We know that Revelation ends with a marriage feast of the Lamb. We know that the very first command in the Bible, way back in Genesis, God gave a command to Adam and Eve about what they're allowed to eat or not eat. But God wasn't really concerned with their digestive tract in the garden. There was something more profound at play, more profound at stake, something spiritual. In the passage we find ourselves in today, food and drink restrictions are placed suddenly upon a couple and their son. And it's not just for their general health, overall well-being. It's something spiritual. It has deep implication. To see what I mean, turn with me to Judges 13. Judges chapter 13. This is found on page 213 in the Bibles provided. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context about the book of Judges. Uh, As you know, if you've been here for some of the previous uh, Sundays we've gone through this book, Judges gets darker and darker the further along you go through it. This is right after the Mosaic leaders have died, Moses, Joshua, but it's before the monarchy dawns in Israel. So there's this period of time in between those two great moments of leadership where Israel has no leader, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and it's a downward descent. In fact, Personal autonomy is the only operating system guiding the moral compass of the nation in the book of Judges. The people continually turn their back on God. But in his love and kindness and mercy, God keeps raising up these military judges who crush their enemies. But even when they experience peace and prosperity, they don't turn to the Lord and love him more and repent. They actually get more and more wicked as they regain their freedoms. And God, time after time, has been raising up judges. We've actually seen 11 judges go by up until this point. And when we come to the life of Samuel, where we're at today, or excuse me, Samson, Samson is the 12th and final judge of the entire book. 
So rather than have one sermon that covers all four chapters of his life in one big swoop, we're going to slow down a little bit, and Lord willing, this Sunday and the next couple of Sundays, take the beginning, middle, and end of Samson's life. So today we're going to focus in on the beginning of Samson's life. How will the Lord do it this time? How will he raise up his 12th and final judge? And how does it matter to your lives? That's what we want to look at. So let's read together. Follow along with me. Judges 13. We'll read the entire chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please, let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. Noah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. 
But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. As we study this passage this morning, it's my prayer that you would come to know more deeply what God's promises are and what they do to your lives, what they've done to my life, and that we would see Jesus as the fulfillment of this passage. If you're taking notes, a few housekeeping things to take note of. Main point, structure, overall points. I want to just give those to you right off the bat. Here they are. If you're searching and discerning what's the main idea of this passage, I think it would be this. God has promised a miracle child that is to be totally devoted in holiness from the womb to the grave to deliver God's people. God has promised a miracle child that is to be totally devoted in holiness from the womb to the grave, bringing deliverance for God's people. That's the main idea. That's actually the, the launching point at which if you stare at that phrase long enough, that'll take you right to the birth of Jesus Christ, will it not? But before we get there, the structure also helps us. Did you notice how verse 1 and then the last two verses of the chapter span many years? You notice how 40 years go by in verse 1? And then at the end of the chapter, Samson grows up, which takes many years to do. A lot of years are going by. But chapter 13, the way it's structured is all of the detail is packed in between those years, namely, before Samson is born. So in the span of a really short time, we get detail packed in. The author is trying to show us something. What I think he's trying to show us would follow along with these three points. These are the three big ideas of the sermon that you can pivot your thoughts on. Three words. They're all really short. Point number one, bitter. Bitter. Point number two, sweet. Sweet. And point number three, wonderful. Bitter, sweet, and wonderful. Those are points that help us orient to what's happening here. There are three truths that we want to draw out of this passage today following bitter, sweet, and wonderful. We'll spend a little bit more time on sweet. And this is going to help us explain the passage and apply it to our lives. Bitter, sweet, and wonderful. So with point number one, bitter, here's the, the truth with bitter. Life in a fallen world is bitter with pain outside and pain within. Life in a fallen world is bitter with pain from the outside and pain within. Are your eyes open to the fact that we live in a fallen world? Seriously, at this very moment, did you come to our gathering today thinking somehow I'm, I can be kind of insulated from the fallen brokenness of our world? This passage says the complete reverse. You can't escape 
the brokenness of this world, whether it comes from the outside and lays heavy on you, even if you feel like you're escaping that, there is inescapable brokenness on the inside. And we see that in this couple. We see it in bondage from without and barrenness from within. That's verses 1 and 2. Look with me. Put your eyes on verse 1. Look how bitter these circumstances are. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Do you remember how long the people wandered in the desert after the Exodus? 40 years. This is a lifetime. Even if you live to old age, this is still most of your life. They're in bondage for 40 years. Earlier in this book, when they would sin against God, they were enslaved for 7 years or 18 years or 20. But here it's 40 years. It's like the book of Judges is showing us that when we sin, the consequences not only get worse and worse, but we never know how bad they're going to be. Have you ever had the thought, be honest with yourself, have you ever had the thought, I can do this sin against God, and I kind of I know what's going to happen. I know that my fellowship with Him may be disrupted for maybe an hour or two, maybe even a day, but I'll be walking with Him two or three days from now. Have you ever thought you know what's going to happen when you're about to sin? Let this verse, the 40 years of bondage, rescript that thinking to put fear in you and me that we never know what the consequences of our sin are going to be in their duration. It's arrogant and prideful to assume we know. We don't have the luxury of standing on the last day of our lives, looking back at our life, and having these calculated, measurable printout spreadsheet handed to us, hey, when you sin that way, here's all the things that are going to go bad for a while for you. Here's the way your fellowship with God is going to be disrupted. We don't have that. I know this is true of you because it's true of me. And I know that as sinners, temptation is common to man, to all of us. I know a temptation that hits my life, and that is, I think I know what's going to happen if I, if I sin in this way false that's wicked that's wrong thinking tremble at the thought of isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 we hear that our iniquities make a separation between us and god our sins hide his face from us so that he does not hear and what's scary about a verse like that it doesn't say how long that's going to go on As great as your walk with the Lord is in this very moment, you could sin willfully against him today and harden your heart, and you may have years and years and years of consequences for it. So I want to awaken you right at the start of this sermon. Don't be like the nation of Israel who kept presuming to know how long their bondage would be. They're at a point now in the book where it's longer than they've ever thought possible, 40 years. But that's on the outside. It gets worse for this couple that we're looking at, Manoah and his wife. Look at verse 2. It's bitter on the inside for them. Verse 2, Manoah, 
the end of verse 2. His wife was barren and had no children. Their fertility hopes had vanished. They were feeling helpless and defeated. Manoah and his wife, and by the way, she's unnamed. We don't know her name. Perhaps because as central as she is to the events unfolding in this story, it's not primarily about her, it's about the Lord. Put yourself in their shoes. Perhaps she's unnamed just so we get that extra nudge towards, yeah, feel how insignificant this woman is. She wants children so badly and she can't have them. By not giving you her name, that's an extra taste of what it feels like for her. She feels forgotten. Outwardly, things are bleak, but inwardly, they're carrying this weight of unmet expectations and dried up hopes. In a church this size, some of you, some of you in this room are are going through pain that involves your bodies. Some of you are going through the the gut-wrenching circumstances of barrenness. And you haven't told anybody. You haven't even told me. But you're going through it, or you know people in your family who are going through it. Some of you don't have to imagine the ache, the hopes for children, the sting that lingers, the way it gnaws at you relentlessly and personally. I was struck this week reading Proverbs chapter 30 when it says this. It says, four things are never satisfied. Death in the grave, never satisfied. A thirsty land that needs rain. It's not satisfied. Every day it needs rain and it's not getting it. A consuming fire, it never has enough. And then the scriptures say, fourthly, a barren womb. The depth of the unsatisfaction of a barren womb, it's hard for me as a man to comprehend. But verses like this help me. If there are any women in your life that you know in your family or you love that are experiencing barrenness, you know the pain here. Perhaps this couple are are crying out to God, God, if you love me, why don't we have a child? What's the point of their barrenness? Did they know about the barrenness in redemptive history before them, like Sarah and Rachel? I mean, certainly they didn't know about the barrenness after them because it hadn't happened yet, but Hannah in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, she's barren. This grief was all too common. I want to encourage you this morning that if it's barrenness specifically, take hope from the Scriptures. In a more indirect way, if there's anything broken or wrong or just not being fulfilled in your body, your physical body right now. I may not have all the answers of why, but here's the the banner over that ache in your body. Whatever physical ailment is going wrong, we live in a fallen world. We don't experience perfection in this life. We don't even experience if we maintain something well, it's going to keep working well. 
Our bodies are of dust. They're subject to decay. If going to your body is the place where you're getting your hopes and your fulfillment, watch out because that that well will dry up. There's a bigger hope. We're going to see that in a moment. But this couple, little did they know that the platform of their grief was going to be a platform to display the promises of God. I want to encourage you this morning, whatever's going wrong in your body, aches, pains, whatever it is, have you ever thought about that fact is really an opportunity to display praise and thanks to God when the person who doesn't know the Lord could only complain about it? Start to see your frailty from the Lord's perspective. He made us weak so that we would lean on him. And he raises the dead. So even if your weakness brings you all the way to the point of death, keep casting yourself on him. He he raises the dead. This is a sweet moment for this couple. God's promises matter to them because things are so bleak and broken. And that's what we see here, point number two. Look how sweet things get in a moment. They get sweet in verse 3. Here's, number, here's point number two, though, sweet. If we want to have kind of a phrase, a truth, to go along with this word for sweet, it's this. God's promises give sweet hope when they're understood and believed. God's promises give sweet hope when they're understood and believed. One pastor who who mentored me, used to say the Old Testament, you could summarize all of it as just it's promises that are kept. Excuse me, promises that are made. And the New Testament is promises kept. I loved it. It was just the simple way to package the whole Bible. Old Testament promises made, New Testament promises kept. In this passage, we've got both happening. Who's speaking this promise? What does it mean? What does it mean to your life, my life, this couple's life? Let's look at that. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. 100% truth, painful truth. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Before we start to unravel this promise, it's so sweet, it's so good. We just have to stop because I know some of you might be wondering, who is the angel of the Lord? We touched on this a little bit a few sermons ago earlier in Judges, but just as a reminder, the angel of the Lord is the divine authoritative messenger of God. I'll leave it up to you to decide, is this, could this be a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ or a created angel? I'll leave it up to you to decide. Scholars debate over it. Um, I like how Vern Poitras he, he wrote this excellent book called Theophany. He makes a strong case that that word for angel, especially in the original wording here, in English, when we see the word angel, we immediately think created being. But in the original here, angel just simply means messenger. It gets at the function of what's happening, not whether the person is divine, God, or created. And we don't know here. It's this human-like, angelic figure. We can't dogmatically say one way or the other. 
Could it be Christ? It could be. But the angel of the Lord, one thing we can be sure of, it's, it's God's authoritative messenger. When the angel of the Lord speaks, the words carry the same weight as if God is speaking because he's bringing the message of God. The angel of the Lord showed up already in Judges, several places, chapter 2, chapter 6. But the promise is stunning. Let's put our eyes on the promise again. Verse 3, you're going to conceive. Verse 4, some stipulations about what's going to happen. Verse 5, the promise is fleshed out a little more. This child's going to be a Nazarite and begin to save Israel from the Philistines. So did you see the three-layered nature of the promise? Sweet, you're going to have a son. Even sweeter, your son is going to be devoted to the Lord from the womb to the grave. We see that again at the end of verse 7. She, she tells us, yeah, he told me a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Sweet, you're going to have a son. Really sweet. That son's going to be devoted to the Lord. Even sweeter than that, your son is going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now imagine if this couple only wanted a child and that's as far as their desires went and they stopped. The rest of the promise would have actually been kind of interesting to hear. We have a son. We're going to have a son. But the angel's not done talking. Yeah, you're going to have a son, but your son's going to be a Nazarite to God his entire life. And he's going to be a judge that starts to deliver the nation. How are we to understand this promise? Well, I want to help you understand this promise and actually apply it to your life. That phrase there, uh, don't have strong drink, eat nothing unclean. Did you catch how many times it was repeated in this chapter as we read through it? Three times. Three different times in this chapter It's repeated again and again. Keep this Nazarite vow. Now, Mason read for us earlier in the service, Numbers chapter 6, which details the Nazarite vow. It wouldn't be easy to keep. This very week, I thought about what would it be like if I was trying to keep the Nazarite vow today in Austin, Texas. You know what happened about three, four seconds? No lie. Three, four seconds after that thought, I'm doing some Bible study prep. I'm at a coffee shop here in town. I'm thinking, Lord, what would it be like for me to keep this Nazarite vow? I reach to sip my coffee, a half winter moon on ice. I'm not going to say where that's from, but it's really good. I go to sip it. A little gnat comes flying into my mouth, and I take it out, and I, I crush it in my fingers. I just broke my Nazarite vow. If I were trying to keep the Nazarite vow and that happened to me way back then or now, I just ate something unclean and I just touched something dead, which number six prohibits, that's how quickly I would have voided my vow. So don't see this as, okay, they'll just change their eating habits a little bit. You know what it's like to try to have new dietary restrictions placed upon you. You have to kind of rearrange everything. That's what happens here. A Nazarite vow, what is that? What's the significance here? 
If you want to study this further, go back to number six later today. But the Nazarite vow is mentioned often in Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah says she's going to dedicate her son to the Lord and no razor is going to touch his head. Flashing lights, code word for Nazarite vow. No razor is going to touch his head. When John the Baptist comes in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, no strong drink, no wine. Code word, flashing lights, Nazarite vow. When the Apostle Paul in Acts 18 or even Acts 21 is told to cut his hair because he's under a vow, flashing lights, neon signs, he's under a Nazarite vow at that moment. The Nazarite vow happens often in Scripture. Even in the book of Amos, we're told that God would gift his people by giving them prophets and giving them Nazarites to point them to him. There's a lot of speculation about what the Nazarite vow means. All this stuff about no grapes, no fruit of the vine, no razor, nothing dead. There's some wild speculations. Maybe you've heard some of these. Some think the Nazarite vow, no fruit on the vine, is to be a reverse display of Adam and Eve in the garden who took of fruit. Some think no strong drink, abstain from that so that your passions are never led astray. Some think these symbols of judgment like a razor or like God's cup of wrath, it's to abstain from symbols of judgment. Some think that the men grow their hair long so that they won't worry about their appearance anymore and it'll actually humble them in repentance. And still others, different commentators, interpreters, some think, because even women can do this vow, to grow your hair long is actually to look great and stunning without any artificial ornamentation. What are we to do with that? All these different speculative meanings. This is a lesson for us, not just with the Nazarite vow, but any time in the scriptures we face something that we're not really sure why or what it means. What we do is we go to the facts. We go to what's clear and revealed. We don't camp out in speculation. So what's clear, factual about the Nazarite vow? It was completely outward and visible. It couldn't remain hidden. It was available to men or women without discrimination. The vow was to be kept willingly, diligently. If broken, number six, later on in Numbers chapter six, provides steps of how to remedy the vow once it's been broken. But it was a costly vow of holiness. The clear purpose of the Nazarite vow, it's simple being set apart as holy, devoted to the Lord. That's what it's for. The Nazarite vow is to be a visible, outward display of one who's set apart, holy, devoted to the Lord. And verse 5 tells us in this chapter, the Nazarite vow is not just for, for one person. It's not even for the nation. It's not for national pride. It's not for gaining spiritual authority over others. As verse 5 says, being a Nazarite, to God. It's done to the Lord. How would this couple respond to these dietary restrictions? I mean, perhaps the wife is immediately thinking, we're going to have to get all raisins out of the house. We're going to have to get all grapes out of the house. We're going to have to make sure our son's friends never bring raisins into our house. The husband, maybe he's saying, hey, no haircuts. It's 
going to save us some time and money. No haircuts. Who knows what they start talking about? What we have here is their response. And kind of a stereotypical man response, Manoah, in verse 8. He wants to know what to do about it, so he prays to the Lord. We don't get a lot of Manoah's feelings, but from verse 8 all the way down to verse 14, he asks for this divine messenger to come back. And he asks, what are they supposed to do? Put your eyes on verse 12. Manoah says, Now when your words come true, so he's got a lot of faith, he's believing it, what is to be the child's manner of life? What's the child's mission? In other words, what's this boy's responsibility and work supposed to be? If he's going to be so great and save Israel, what's, what's he supposed to be doing? How do we raise him? How do we raise the boy? Verse 13. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. And he repeats the vow. So they're not supposed to send Samson off to karate school. They're not supposed to train him in some super warrior classes. They're supposed to keep the Nazarite vow. And when they ask for more information, what God said is already sufficient. Keep this vow. In other words, the most important thing about raising this son is that you ensure that he learns about what it means to be holy and devoted to the Lord. What a lesson for parents today, right? Would it have inconvenienced these parents to raise their son as a Nazarite? Remember, they didn't choose to. God's telling them to. Yeah, it would have inconvenienced them. Grape juice, get it out of the house. Dead animal near the back of the house. Samson raises his hand. I'll go get it. I'll deal with it. Dad always does it. I'll do it. And they run and they grab. Nope, you can't touch that. All kinds of just daily life things that would change for him. But these promises, they had been made. You would have a son. He'll be a Nazarite. He'll begin to save the people. As uncomfortable and as much rearranging would happen in their life because of the promise, the joy and hope of the promise fuels them to go through the uncomfortable living of the promise. That's a gospel truth for us today, is it not? If there's any area of your life where you feel like, I don't really want to obey the Lord in this. I don't really care. I care sometimes. Or right now, I just I don't want to obey God. The problem happening in that moment, it's true for me, it's true for you, is that you forget the wonder, the sweetness of God's promise that can fuel your obedience to his commands. I don't know what season of life you're in. If you're a college student, maybe the promise of God you need more than anything is James 1.5, that if you ask God of wisdom, he'll give it to you. Lord, what's my major supposed to be? What am I supposed to do with my career? What do I do after I graduate? What roommate should I have? Take the promise of James 1.5. Meditate on it. Maybe your health is failing right now. Maybe you're later in life. Maybe you're younger in life and your health is nagging at you. Your body feels like it's falling apart. Maybe the promise you need is 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4, 16 and 18, where it says our outer bodies, our outer self is wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Maybe you're trapped in sin, in lust, and you need the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God doesn't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, and with the temptation, he actually provides a way of escape. A promise we all need is Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When anything in this world tempts us to choose between loving, obeying, serving, knowing God, or instead go for this, Psalm 1611 puts the weight where it's supposed to be. Different seasons of your life will cause you to lean into promises of God with different intensity. Like I said a moment ago, maybe a college student leans so heavy into James 1.5 where someone who's on their deathbed, they're not so worried about, about wisdom. They're worried about, am I really going to be renewed inwardly? Because outwardly I'm wasting away. So the type and time of our life changes when we lean on promises, but the fact remains A Christian, we understand, is a person who is leaning, trusting in the promises of God. So I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, what promise of God are you leaning on right now? This is where it hurts. Often, if you're like me, we get up and we go about our day and we haven't refreshed our heart with any promises of God. We haven't rehearsed anything we've memorized and meditate on it. We just get going for the day. I want to encourage you, keep studying new promises of God in the Scriptures. There are promises everywhere. Every book of the Bible has promises for us. First, 2 Peter 1.4 tells us that God has granted to us His great and precious promises so that by them we can escape the corruption of the world and become partakers of the divine nature. What could be better news than that right now? What God's word just told you was, here's how you can partake of the divine nature. Not that you're going to become a God, but that you can know God's ways. You can reflect his character. You can have his joy. You do it through his promises. 2 Peter 1.4. So the sweetness of this couple receiving this news, if you ask yourself, who needs a baby promise? Is it just for them? No, this was for the entire nation. This wasn't just a baby for them. This was a judge that would help destroy the enemies for the nation. Who needs a baby promise? You do. I do. Jesus came incarnate for our sins. Just like the Lord came here and through a messenger gave a word that, okay, this woman who doesn't expect at all to have a child, sees no hope for a child. In a time where it's such a dark, bitter situation, I'm going to promise you a son beforehand, and oh, by the way, that son is going to be holy and devoted to me, and he's supposed to be devoted from now till his death, and he's going to save the nation. That's not a promise for these parents. That's a promise for us now. It shows us Jesus Christ. 
This is what the Lord said to Mary. You're going to have a child. And she was a virgin. It seemed more impossible than this. And unlike Samson, who we'll see in a couple of Sundays, he falls and fumbles his devotion to the Lord. Jesus perfectly lives it out. There's a promise in Christ today that needs to be proclaimed. And that is eternal life is found in Jesus. If you don't know the Lord and you wonder, how do I become a Christian? How do I have hope for life? You trust the promise that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He substituted himself in your place and rose again from the grave, proving he is who he says he is, God in the flesh. And his cleansing blood can make you right before God and restore your relationship with God. You can be forgiven. That promise of eternal life, which is echoed all throughout the New Testament, is the promise you need to come to believe if you don't know the Lord. If you know the Lord, it's actually the promise you have to keep coming back to and rehearsing and loving and trusting. Not because you're no longer saved if you forget that promise tomorrow, but because when you forget that promise tomorrow, you'll have no motivation to live out his commands. You'll just do it in an outward, hypocritical, shell kind of way. God's promises are foundational to everything. But the promises, this is where it's tough. They take time to unfold. This is our closing point. Wonderful. Wonderful. God's promises prove wonderful in source and fulfillment and timing. Source and fulfillment and timing. What a wonder that when they asked this angel, what's your name? Perhaps they want to name the child after the angel. We don't know. The angel says, it's too wonderful for you. In other words, some translations would say, why do you ask my name? Verse 18, since it's beyond understanding. It's extraordinary. It's incomprehensible. This is like Psalm 139, verse 6, where we know such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. God's purposes are bigger than than we have a baby because he didn't just send any person to deliver the message. He sends a divine, authoritative messenger. God's purposes are bigger than just this couple having a child because this child is to be devoted to God to save the nation. There is wonder bound up in the character of the one speaking the promise. And then there's wonder in what happens when that divine messenger leaves, caught up in the flame. And then nine months, ten months go by. Then there's that wonder of Samson actually being born. It's almost like a footnote. Did you notice verse 24? It's almost like a footnote. And the woman bore a son. Called his name Samson. There's deep wonder in that verse. They've been barren for so long. So God can work wonders supernaturally, caught up in the flame, wonders about his character, or he can work wonders through seemingly ordinary means. A woman's pregnant and gives birth. It's wonderful to think that when all this happens, Manoah thinks that they're now going to die. 
verse 22. He says, we're going to die. We've seen God. And she employs this holy logic. No, I don't think God would have allowed all these things to happen if he's just going to kill us now. As wonderful as God is, he doesn't tell us to leave our our reason at the door. He wants us to think sober-minded. But this is a wonderful end to the passage because all these promises are not just words. They come to fruition. But from the time the promise is spoken to the time Samson is born, there's a period of waiting. That's kind of the time that we live in now as Christians. Promises have been inaugurated, but they're not yet fulfilled completely. This is a wonderful end to the passage. Samson, his name means like boy of the sun, like sunlight, if you, if you translate it roughly. In other words, all the darkness that's been in this book, here's an opportunity for light to dawn. Yet again, another pointer that this is about Jesus. It's a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. So our closing thought today, brothers and sisters, is this. If you're like me, you read this chapter, you get to verse 24, the woman bore a son, and you kind of go to the next verse. That's kind of wonderful to me, but I'm not them, so I don't really feel the wonder that they did. Are you feeling the wonder of promises God has made to you and come to pass in your life now? Namely, salvation you know Christ promises that he makes about our sanctification the wonder you feel as you see your life and character truly changing to look more like Jesus I don't know what bitterness is weighing on your life right now outside or within but I know that the sweet promises of God are your only hope to have hope that's going to last and I know that even if you're trusting in those promises the wonder takes time to unfold I pray that the bitter, sweet, wonderful flow of this passage would be true of your life. It's only true of your life if you're in Christ. It's to him we pray. Let's pray.